afternoon to you both. Hiya, Johnny. This is Bill. I've got Bill. David, are you there? Yes, I am. Hello there. Hi. Now, it's very easy to tell you apart uh, because <laughs> Bill is from north and David is from south. Yes. The podcast won't go out till February, but the book is finite. You have discovered the Black Pioneers, the first black players of every football league club. Although, Bill, is it right that it went to print before Barrow and Harrogate went up? Harrogate went up, I should argue. No, it, it went to print almost the minute that the full-time whistle uh, blew out when Harrogate beat Notts County in the playoff final. So we, I was actually standing over the television. We had a chapter written for Notts County. We had a chapter written for Harrogate. And once we knew who'd won, we could uh, proceed with the publication. Notts County is interesting, though, because it is one of the oldest football clubs. It will not be fun for any of us to go through all 92 football clubs. It would have been 91 had Notts County gone up. Because I think, I, I have looked at the website, footballs-black-pioneers.com. I think you say that Berry would have been left out. Berry dropped out of the league, so we sadly didn't include them. We did include Macclesfield, who subsequently dropped out. So there are actually 93 chapters, but uh, nobody's counting. Um, and for clubs like Notts County and perhaps Chesterfield, potentially, we, as you say, they're great clubs with great history. So what we're doing is putting their stories on the on the blog so they don't get missed out because they are fascinating stories. Oh, it's, a, it's an unbelievable project. And as someone who took eight years to write a book that I don't talk about, this isn't about my book. This is about other books in the football library. So Bill Hearn and David Gleave, you both get your football library membership cards uh, on which Brian Glanville's face is bedecked. He is shushing you on the library card. Um, Fantastic. Thank you. How, David, what was the division of labour in the book? Well, I think um, it was almost random. I think we picked up individual players and we tended to follow their careers through. So later on, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll be talking about Tony Collins. Um, I got Tony Collins because he was Crystal Palace's first black player. And so I followed him around uh, the clubs where he was also the first black player. Bill, on the other hand, um, I'm not quite sure how this came about, but Bill uh, took Lindy Delapena. Lindy was the first black player at, uh, I think it was four clubs in the end. So uh, Bill followed Lindy around the country. Um, it was almost random, but I mean, that, that there, there were some that obviously we took. Bill took uh, Sunderland for obvious reasons. Uh, I, so I took Crystal Palace for obvious reasons. After that, it became a little bit random, I think. Neat. They're very good. You've mentioned the two. And I think the, my policy here is if you mention a name that the listener won't have heard of, I will latch on it. So uh, I will ask you, David Gleave, what are the four clubs that Lindy Della Pena became the first person of colour, footballer of colour, uh, black pioneer? I'm going to hand that one straight over to Bill because Bill, Bill wrote the Lindy chapters. Ah, uh, OK. Yeah, well done, David. <laughs> is, is he allowed to do that, Johnny? No. Oh, don't be fair, be fair. <laughs> I can try, but uh, you'll get a much better answer from Bill. Yeah, well, I mean, Lindy is a historic figure because he's certainly the first Jamaican-born player to play in the Football League. Uh, and he was also the first player to play for a team that won the league championship uh, with Portsmouth in 1949 and 1950. He didn't play enough games to win a, a league championship medal, 
but he was good enough to play for the you know the, the best team in the land, although he wasn't a regular. So he was the first black player at Portsmouth. Um, then he moved on to Middlesbrough, where he enjoyed the the best of his career. He was at Middlesbrough, I think, a good nine years, perhaps. I was going and to was say, black... moving from Portsmouth to Middlesbrough is a long way, but if he's come over from the Caribbean, that's <laughs> yeah. it's a hop, skip, and a jump. Yeah, amazing. There weren't many black people in Middlesbrough in 1950. There, there were not. I mean, oddly enough, Chris Kamara would later be born in Middlesbrough. Uh, but not quite quite by 1950. And even in Chris Kamara's time, he would have been a very, very rare black face. I mean, at Middlesbrough, he played alongside Brian Clough. Uh, they were quite good friends. Um, after Middlesbrough, he moved on to Mansfield, who were, I think, third division north when he started. And obviously, it was a big name there. The crowd has just rocketed once, uh, once they'd signed Lily, Lindy De La Pena. He went to Burton, where he joined Peter Taylor, who was Brian Clough's old... Uh, assistant so you know four four clubs he was the first black player he then went back to Jamaica and he became a a TV personality he presented the the good morning program for for many many years and really everything Lindy touched turned to gold he was brilliant at everything cricket football rugby swimming gymnastics he was just too perfect for words really I'm so glad I know about him John Barnes will have certainly known him if uh, John watched telly in the 60s and 70s Definitely. But yeah, a very, very successful man in everything he did. I mean, you know, he even married a beautiful woman from Middlesbrough. His daughter, his daughter was a beauty queen. You know, everything he touched was just uh, turned to gold. That's brilliant. I've never been to Jamaica. Did you both? I know, David, you're married to someone from Guyana, so you may well have been there. Did it make you want to spend more time in the Caribbean researching all these figures? Well, Bill did actually go to Barbados, I think, largely with the purpose of uh, meeting Roland Butcher, I think, um, who we interviewed over in Barbados, who was another one of our first black players. Um, I have never been to the Caribbean. It was a, We have got plans to go to Barbados either this year, which obviously had to be cancelled, or hopefully next year. But uh, it's not something I've ever done, but I'm, something I'm definitely on my to-do list. I think for as a fourth-generation Jewish immigrant, I would wilt in the Caribbean. I would have to take hats and sun cream and layers and be very uncomfortable. And uh, although I am used to, having lived in Edinburgh where the smell of hops is in the air, I am used to smelling something in the air at all times. But yes, Roland Butcher, you mentioned, and we'll get back to Tony Collins, who of course has a personal um, connection to me as a Watford boy. But Roland Butcher, who was even better at cricket than he was at football, Bill? Yeah, Roland was much better at cricket. I think he'd be the first to admit that. He, he was the first black player to play for England at cricket. On the football side, he played for Stevenage. He was Stevenage's first black player, but that was back in their non-league days. Uh, I interviewed him in Barbados. Absolutely beautiful setting. Uh, while I was in Barbados, I, I sought out the, the birthplace of Tony Ford's father. Tony Ford's the player that played over a 1,000 league games. I know him from the record books. His father, believe it or not, was a wrestler and he came from a little place called St Simon in Barbados. And I know we think everywhere in Barbados is beautiful and glamorous, but St Simon really is the, the end of the road, literally. Um, it's, not, it's not a very exciting place to be. So I think he probably was better off um, living in Grimsby. But uh, yeah, <laughs> Barbados is beautiful and I had a, a really nice time with Roland. He's a nice guy. Um, 
but yeah, obviously a better cricketer than a footballer. He goes down in history as Stevenage's first black player. And thus makes the book Football's Black Pioneers, forward by Viv Anderson, who was the first black player to play senior football for England. Uh, and it's priced at £16 by Conquer Editions, which, David, is a, a publishing house I've not heard of. Uh, why Conquer? Well, I think when we were looking around, uh, we were attracted to the fact that they are kind of a niche football uh, publishing company. Um, they specialised in uh, slightly offbeat uh, books about football. Um, we tried one or two bigger houses, and I think... Uh, uh, certainly the one I wrote, you didn't bother to reply, so they, they lost out on that. Um, but Con- Conquer seemed enthusiastic about the project, to be honest, and that was uh, that was what won us over. And as I say, they are very much a niche football publishing company. And there are many of those, and, and they're on the spines of the football library, go from Faber to uh, self-publishing. Uh, and as long as there are readers, it's worth writing these books. And... Uh, having heard Bill, having been to the website and heard many appearances on the BBC, hopefully in the last couple of months, you've had a lot of readers from this project. Are there any famous people who have got in touch with you, having read the book, including some of the pioneers' families? Um, I was thinking of Peter Foley. Well, I, exactly. Um, I was thinking of Peter Foley as well. I mean, P- Peter Foley's not a household name in footballing terms. He was the first black player. Workington, who of course aren't in the league anymore, and also at Chesterfield. Um, but he was the first black player uh, with Scunthorpe, and he gets into the book on that basis. Um, he had a decent career in the early 60s, but I mean, the interesting thing about Peter Foley is his, his, uh, his encounters with racists uh, in the game. I don't think I've put it up yet, but there's a little film of him uh, being interviewed by, um, in Cumbria, which is where he lives now about his early experiences in the game. And he, he tells the story, which we've got in the book anyway, of how he went down to his first ever game in London, uh, a game at uh, Queen's Park Rangers, uh, at the end of a season. Uh, and he heard the, ch- the, the crowd chanting Zulu, Zulu, every mm. time he touched the ball. And he was really upset by this. This was around about the time that the film called Zulu had come out. Yeah. When the fixtures came out for the following season, he realised that... Uh, uh, Scunthorpe's first game of the following season was away at Millwall uh, and he was very well aware of the reputation that the Millwall crowd had at that time perhaps a reputation they haven't entirely lost now and he feigned injury he, he was so sort of scared of going down to play at the Den uh, that he pretended to be injured and didn't make the trip yeah. and he does he does say in, in the interview that uh, he realised by doing that, he'd let himself down, uh, he'd let his teammates down, he'd let the club down, uh, and he'd let the racists win. And he, he says he swore at that point never ever to um, let racism beat him again and to fight back whenever whenever he encountered it. And subsequently, I mean, his football career lost, I think, about six seasons. Um, subsequently, he got a job. Um, he was in the Boilermakers Union, I, um, and uh, he became very active in their anti-racist uh, work and eventually got an MBE for his anti-racism work so his is an interesting story not one many people will have heard of um, but certainly well worth telling and it's in the book I I was amazed at that story and this was before uh, Paris Saint-Germain and was it Bashik Sheikh here they walked off the pitch last week so as you were watching the footage and neither of you can take this um, these are two teams who have walked off England had threatened to walk off against Bulgaria whenever it was last year. The answer is we can't play if the atmosphere is different. We can hold a banner that says respect all races, but it's it's not fair 
to do our job in this kind of environment. What's next? What happens now in professional football? Because we've had it at non-league level with games stopping and players walking off. Yeah, I was going to mention that because, um, I mean, the, the, I think the game between uh, Yeovil and I think it was Harringay yeah. Town uh, in, the F, in, in, in an early round of the FA Cup. Um, it was a, just to show that racism uh, is sort of can crop up anywhere. It was the Yeovil fans who were hurling racist abuse at, uh, uh, I think it was the Haringey goalkeeper. Yeah. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> I think it's very much to the credit that both teams walked off. I think uh, the I think the uh, the Yeovil players said, said look, we're, we, we can't stand this. We're going to walk off. And the Haringey players said, we'll come with you. Uh, and I think that was... Uh, you know, quite an important moment. I mean, okay, it was a very, a fairly obscure early game in the FA Cup, but uh, it was the first time that I'm aware of that both teams have walked off in England because of racist abuse from the crowd, uh, and it, you know, it was roundly condemned by both clubs. The game was abandoned and had to be replayed, um, and I think that's important that that happened. Players of the 70s and 80s did not get that sort of opportunity. If they faced uh, racism, bananas and oranges and stuff being thrown at them, the manager simply said, look, you've got to get on with it. It's a fact of life. You're black. That's what happens. And when I asked Viv Anderson, who's been amazingly supportive, by the way, um, what would have happened if uh, if he'd walked off the pitch in the, in the 1970s, he, he just laughed and he said, I, I would have been sacked. I, I would have been signing at the Labour Exchange the following Monday and somebody else would have taken my place in, in the team. So the great thing now is that if players do walk off, we know they're going to get the support that they deserve. But that, was, that wasn't available to players in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, I have read a couple of books that deal with race. Um, Pitch Black by Emmy Anora, I read. Yeah. And I describe it as a 360-page sigh because nothing has changed. It's a chronicle of how history will repeat itself, and there was there seemed to be no solution. Um, I don't know if either of you have read Emmy's book, which is very good. Speaks to Viv Anderson and Cyril Regis and Clyde Best, and yes, I have got a copy, Johnny. Yeah, I, I, there are very few football books we haven't read, to be honest. Uh, that, that exists at the moment. There's a, there's a fair few coming out next year. I haven't read The Acid Test by Clyde Best, but I did read something uh, because he was talking about it in the context of Black History Month. Clyde Best, I don't think, was the first anywhere. Uh, that's Yeah, that, well, that, that, that's correct. Yes, I, mean, I, I bought The Acid Test because uh, I was doing uh, the West Ham chapter and I wanted to read about Clyde's experiences at West Ham even though we knew, really, that he wasn't the first black player there. Um, he, he does get a, a decent mention in the book because, as I say, even though he wasn't the first, the abuse he suffered was uh, extreme, even by the standards of the day. Um, so, uh, yeah, yes, it, it's, a good, it's a good book. I mean, the, the, it gets his title from the incident where uh, he, I think, got a letter in the post to say, if you run out the, onto the pitch on Saturday, we're going to throw acid in your face. Um, which um, the authorities obviously took seriously because um, there was a police uh, kind of um, cordon uh, at, around the players' tunnel as they ran out. So a uh, pretty scary experience for him. And so it wasn't just bananas that people were threatened with. It was uh, more serious stuff as well. But he, uh, elevated, in the he elevated West Ham's team. The footage, uh, the BBC ran a clip uh, during Football Focus. He looked like a different kind of... You know how Usain Bolt is a different kind of sprinter? Clyde Best looked like a different kind of football. Do you remember watching him on match of the day in the 70s I've, I've seen Clyde Best I mean uh, yes I, I do because um, Bill and I both go back a bit um, I've almost certainly seen Clyde 
played best play live against Palace, and I mean, I would imagine Bill may well have seen him play against Sunderland. Um, and I've always racked my memory to try and think if uh, there was abuse at Sellers Park when he came to play us. Um, I'd like to think there wasn't. I don't remember any, but just because I don't remember it doesn't mean it didn't happen. But uh, he, he certainly took a, a lot of abuse at many grounds. Was Roker Park one of those grounds? I don't think it was, Johnny. I'm a, I'm a little bit like David. I don't recall very much racist behaviour. I can think of one song that I can remember which was very racist um, and, you know, people would be arrested now if, if they sang it. Um, but I, I've seen players in the book, Pioneers, uh, players who've made their debut at Roker Park. I've been there and I, I don't remember it at all. I don't remember any black person standing out. Um, so, I, you know, hopefully... Uh, black players were treated with some respect in those days, um, although clearly a, a lot of things were allowed to happen that wouldn't happen now. Yeah, it's just the way of the world. When did you both start going? Was it in the depths of the 70s? I wish it was. Yeah. My first game was in 63. Ooh, wow. Black and white. <laughs> yeah, mine, yeah, my, my, mine too. Well, yeah, my first league game was 1965. Um, and, and there were no black faces around in, in the crowd or in the teams in those days. And there's a, there's a team photograph of Nottingham Forest that Viv Anderson gave us. And it must be a squad of about 40. And he is the only black face there. And, you know, it must have been lonely at times for these players. Well, also, that in the context of the 60s, I wasn't there, so I don't remember it. But Windrush had just happened. Uh, Mike Treblecock became the first black player to score in an FA Cup final in 66. Um, but it would have been it would be a while before first generation immigrants would come through. Uh, although I love the story about Chris Kamara. Uh, which one of you spoke? Did you speak to Cammy? Yes, I, I interviewed him. Uh, great, great bloke. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Johnny Phillips has done a lot of work with him. I spoke to Johnny, and you you said, did you know you were Swindon's first black player? Yeah, and he he didn't. And yet he had he brought a scrapbook along, and, and when we opened the scrapbook, the press made a lot of fuss about it. His signing was Swindon signed their first coloured, as, as the language was in those days, player. So the press certainly noticed it, but Chris was completely unaware of it. So it wasn't a big thing, uh, and, and most players say that you know it, it wasn't a big thing, even if they did know about it. Uh, the All other... he wanted to do was play football. Yeah. Absolutely. And the other wing wizard, Albert Johannesson, uh, who wasn't even Leeds's first black player. I, I know the story about it, but there really were, it was one hand, the, the amount of top level black footballers in the British game, just because it wasn't a welcoming place. Well, certainly in Jack Leslie, you'll have heard of Jack Leslie, the player who was picked for England and then dropped when, when it was discovered he was black. He was the only black player in the entire football league between 1921 and 1929. And I think in the period leading up to the Second World War, there were only perhaps a dozen black players had played in the, in the league at that stage. Yeah, and, um, and, and even in the 50s, it was a rarity. Yacklub y- Watford, they were the first team to have two black players in the same side. And the newspaper articles around about 1953 you know, made great play of this. It was it was amazing, you know, the astonishing feat of having two black players, you know, to quote from one newspaper. So it was very, very unusual. And who were those two black players? 
Roy Brown, who Watford had signed from Stoke, and the one and only Tony Collins, whose name keeps cropping up from time to time. Uh, there's a very yeah. lovely, lovely piece on footballs-black-pioneers.com where you can also find a timeline, there's a page of origins, and a nifty PDF that you should not look at until the end of this show because otherwise it will give you the cheat sheet. But David, I'll turn to you, because Tony Collins, as well as representing Watford as a black player, was also Palace. And there are very few Watford and Palace players. I won't mention Kevin Phillips. I was at that game. Were you at the playoff final, 2013? Uh, yes, I, yes, I was. You had a better day than I did. Joel Ward's clearance yes, off the line. That's I, what's forgotten about that day. And I, I remember that very, very well. I was right in line. I could see that shot going in and I could see um, Joel Wall clearing it off the line. Uh, that was, I think that was my son's 22nd birthday. And I said to him, I can get tickets for the playoff final. He said, I'm not sure I want to because it, uh, it could ruin my day. But he, he said to me afterwards, that was the best birthday I've ever had. Kevin Bloody Phillips. <laughs> he didn't even celebrate the goal. Um, but yes, Tony Collins, this life is, I think it's one of the incredible, most incredible in the book. Not only was he uh, a pioneer Hello. as a player, but a pioneer as a manager. Uh, I think it was Kevin Day in his book, Who Are You?, which becomes a very good comparison uh, text with football's black pioneers, said to his friend Troy Townsend, I've just thought, I've just read about Tony Collins. And Troy went, yeah, we know. We know about Tony Collins. Oh, that's that's good to hear. I mean, I'm not sure how many people do know about Tony Collins. I think his name is becoming more prominent now, and that's uh, that's as it should be, really. I mean, I'm interested in Tony Collins for all sorts of reasons, really. I mean, first of all, he was born in 1926, and there are people who say, oh, well, there weren't any black people here before the Windrush. And I mean, Tony Collins is just one of many, many examples of somebody who was here well, yeah, well before the Windrush. Um, he, he was, there's, there's no father's name on the uh, on the birth certificate, but I mean, I, I think it's widely accepted that his father was from West Africa, uh, probably Nigeria. Um, Tony, uh, also interesting because he served in the British Army during the Second World War, uh, as did a number of our players. Roy Brown, who um, uh, Bill mentioned a while ago, also uh, served during during the war. I think Tony Collins was a slightly re- reluctant recruit. He basically went to the army because he had to. He was conscript- conscripted and he was on a ship bound for the Far East, Burma, um, which would have been not a very pleasant uh, posting. Uh, but they diverted for reasons unknown to him to Italy. And he had a think a relatively quiet war in Italy, mostly just driving officers around. So and nonetheless, I mean, we, we, yeah, we, there are people in the book. I mean, one of our players was shot and wounded during the D-Day landings, interestingly. Oh, who was that? Albert Payne, the, uh, the Tranmere Rovers' first black player. Um, not somebody anybody would have heard of outside the Payne family, I suspect. But um, uh, to come back at his first professional contract, I think, was at Sheffield Wednesday. He moved to York. He played a small number of games for York, I think about... 10 or so um, but it was from York that he moved to Watford and that really was the making of him I think for the, he spent three seasons at Watford from 1950-51 onwards and he played 95 games in total and scored nine times and I, th- I think he was pretty successful at Watford um, they sold him to Norwich for a decent fee but he didn't really settle at Norwich uh, I think he was had an unsympathetic manager who he's described as um, uh, you know he's, he basically wasn't above I think being racist in his comments towards Tony. So I don't think he had a very happy time at Norwich. Then he went to Torquay, and then he went back to Watford briefly before coming to Crystal Palace in 1957. And he had a pretty successful time at Palace. He was there two seasons. He played 61 games and scored 16 goals before finally finishing his playing career at Rochdale. There are a couple of interesting things to be said about Rochdale, which is not a sentence you hear very often. But, um, <laughs> we can come on to them in a minute. Gracie Fields. 
yeah, okay, there's a couple, there's a couple more, but uh, yeah, we've come on to Rochdale. I mean, t- Tony had a good career. He was, su- it was suggested at one time that he, he was being scouted for England, but um, for whatever reason, he didn't actually make the England. He never got an England call up, but then he was appointed player manager and thus became the first black manager in English Football League. And I think the chairman of Rochdale uh, was well aware that it was potentially a, quite a controversial uh, appointment because he did say, you know, Tony Collins' autobiography does talk about it, uh, and it's clear that the from comments that are quoted in that book, everybody knew it was a bit, bit of a controversial uh, appointment. But uh, Tony says... The departing manager, Jack Marshall, who was on his way to Blackburn Rovers, big step up for him, recommended him, said you really ought to give Tony the job, and the players were all reaching for him as well. So uh, it was a popular appointment. And he was uh, actually at Rochdale as manager for a number of seasons and pretty successful seasons. I mean, he, he, he remained for a long, long time the only manager to take a team from that division, the, the, the bottom division, to uh, the final of the League Cup. Uh, played over two legs in those days, not at Wembley, but nonetheless, it was still a League Cup final, and I think uh, that remained a, a record until I think it was Bradford. Bradford City achieved it a few years ago. And who brought him to Man United? That, that's a bit of a roundabout route. And basically, uh, from Rochdale, he, I think he basically got fed up at Rochdale, and he, he, he more or less walked out because he was just unhappy about the lack of investment in the team. And I think he honestly expected to get offered another job. He'd done a decent job at Rochdale on a very slim budget, uh, but the offers didn't come. And in the end, he, he accepted a job as uh, assistant manager at Bristol City, uh, and they had a pretty successful uh, run under him, well, sorry, with his help. Uh, but then he was poached. He basically, Leeds United, Don Revy came in for him and said, I want, I want you at my club. Uh, so he went to work for Don Revy at Leeds United, uh, and yeah, this was when Leeds absolutely were at the top yeah, of Leeds. the English game. When Don Revy went to England, he took uh, took Tony Collins with him. So he's part of the backroom team for England uh, with Don Revy. And then he went to uh, Manchester United, initially under Ron Atkinson, who he obviously liked working with. Uh, and then under um, Sir Alex Ferguson, who I think he equally obviously didn't so much enjoy working with. So uh, he's... That, all, all of this was as, as a sort of a chief scout, if you like. He was uh, he was the one that was, they sent abroad to scout out uh, European teams that they were going to come up against and so on. Oh, so, and uh, you know, everybody speaks very highly of the do- the quality of the, of the dossiers that he produced on team teams they were coming up against. That's terrific. Crystal Palace's first black player. Uh, he is. I, I think people do know he's the first black player. There was an item on the Palace um, website during Black History Month. I th- not sure if it was this this year or last year, but acknowledging him as the first black player. Uh, and there was an interesting story when I went when I was trying to find out who Palace's first black player was because I couldn't remember anybody much before Vince Hilaire. I went on the Palace forum and said, you know, what do you think? Uh, and there were some old hand, hands on there who said, no, 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 it was um, it was Tony Collins. And one of them said, oh, I actually interviewed him uh, for for the Palace sort of fans radio. And I asked him, you know, so Tony, you were Palace's first black player, weren't you? And he said, no, I wasn't. And the bloke was so thrown that he forgot to ask the obvious question, of, oh, so who was? Who was um, but I, I had contact with Tony Collins' daughter, Sarita, and she says he doesn't like to be thought of as a black footballer. He wanted to be remember, remembered as a good footballer, not as a black one. So that would be why he said that when he was interviewed. So that's uh, a great character. That's very good. And one of many stories told in this book, Football's Black Pioneers. When I was putting together a best 11 before Bosman... I allowed myself a personal pick, and it was the subject of Dave Hill's book, Out of His Skin, uh, which came out just as John Barnes had moved 
I think it was in the aftermath of him scoring that goal at the Maracanã. But it came out in the 80s and I found a copy and read it in about 2013. And it's got the bananas and the, the how he was found by Graham Taylor. Even though nowadays he is a kind of gun for hire uh, in the press. John Barnes would, at the time, England's most successful, not just black player, but player of any race. I think he's a very important player and also a very good one. Did he ever come up to Sunderland and embarrass Sunderland FC? No, because we weren't always in the first division, I'm afraid. Sorry. Um, I, I, I don't remember John Barnes coming up, to be absolutely honest. Of course, I mean, you had Luther Blissett as well, didn't you, um, at Watford with, with John Barnes. And Luther Blissett was the first black player to, to score for England. I don't, I don't recall John Barnes doing anything, but that was probably when we were languishing in the second division mm-hmm. instead of languishing in the third division now. Well, although we're talking after a 4-0 victory the other day, so you're on the up, you can't get much lower. And I spoke to Nick Barnes the other day, uh, who was very, very charitable about what's going on. In fact, I'll I'll listen to the forum tonight. I'll see what Sunderland fans are saying about Super Lee Johnson. Jermaine Defoe played for Sunderland for a bit. He did. I mean, when we wrote about Sunderland's first black player, Rory Gregoire, the point I tried to get across was that he wasn't a huge success, to say the least, but at least he paved the way for those that followed, you know, um, like Jermaine Defoe, Darren Bent, Gary Bennett, uh, players like that. So, um, you know, somebody's got to be the first, somebody's got to uh, open the door for others. So, Rory Gregoire, little known, but, you know, in my eyes, is a pioneer and uh, a brave player. Because he joined Sunderland when he was only 18 year old. And he would be probably the only, well, he's certainly the only black person at the club he would be one of the very, very few black people in the city. Yeah. And uh, it was it was difficult for him. And in later years, uh, we had a manager called Len Ashurst, and he bought Gary Bennett. He was Sunderland's second black player. But well, Ashurst was astute enough to know that life would be easier for Gary Bennett if he had another black player alongside him. So he quickly signed Howard Gale as well. Now, he stresses he wouldn't have signed either of them if they weren't good players. But he did, it was a deliberate ploy, you know, he did understand the difficulties that black players might have. And so he signed two at roughly the same time. And that, that was quite enlightened thinking because most managers didn't, it didn't cross their mind as to whether they might handle black players a little bit more sensitively. Um, I think of Brendan Batson making his debut as substitute at Newcastle in 1972. And I'd read to think what stick that kid must have taken when, when, he, you know, when he went to warm up. Um, 19 year old, he had a big afro haircut, 32,000 Geordies in the crowd and I just wonder if a more sensitive manager might have given him his debut at Highbury yes. and um, you know, sort of gradually got him into the, uh, the swing of things, well, two I don't po- think people were aware Two points about Batson, Newcastle hadn't played a black player at the time because Howard Gale became Newcastle's first black player uh, and Brendan Batson right. Grenadian immigrant, born in Grenada and came over here and he's a PFA representative and, and a, a voice of conscience. Far be it from me to say Arsenal are the friendliest club to black players, but North London is where a lot of the Caribbean, the Tilbury Dockers settled, rather than West London. Yeah, I would say that was fair comment. I mean, we interviewed quite a lot of players, and it was almost embarrassing the number that said uh, Millwall were the worst. 
and, and I almost got, you know, a, a phobia. Can we really keep on writing this in the book? But it came up time and time again. I forget who it was, said, well, Arsenal were great because it was much more cosmopolitan there. So, yeah, Arsenal did come out, come out of it quite well. That's very interesting. And another thing I learned, it may have been through uh, your, your book, um, the operations manager at the Arndale, who... Yeah. Who, who evacuated the whole centre after a bomb alert came through, is the same man who was the only black Busby babe. That's right, the, the one and only Dennis Walker. He was Manchester United's first black player. He played in 1963. It was, it was an end-of-the-season game at um, Knott's Forest. And Matt Busby was resting one or two players because it was the FA Cup final the following Saturday. So Dennis got into the team... I think it was Bobby Charlton or someone that he replaced. Uh, it was the only game he played, but he was obviously a very good player. You don't get to be a, you know, Man United's youth side without being a very good player. He was on the verge of England boys uh, when he was 15, and had he had he got that cap, he would have been the first black player to represent England at any level. When he left Manchester United, he went to Cambridge United, and he became their first black player and had a, a, a good career in football. But you know, footballers weren't well paid in those days, and they needed to get a job when they retired and he eventually became the um, operations manager at the Arndale Centre and one day there was a call came through to say that a bomb had been planted in the in the centre and it turns out it was the biggest bomb that's been uh, exploded in in England since uh, since World War Two. and Dennis had this big decision do you evacuate the centre because I'm sure they got lots of hawks calls and uh, you know risk all the, the loss of uh, income of the shops and so on he, along with others, decided to evacuate, got everybody out, the bomb went off, and not a single person was killed. But Dennis was thrown across the road. Luckily, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't badly injured. But yeah, he ended up being a hero in a completely different, uh, different field. It's an, it's an unbelievable story, and thank goodness that you've documented it, alongside many others. I have read Ron Atkinson's book, and I know what he thinks of black players so it must have been a real shame when he was fired for quoting somebody talking about black players uh, and was caught on a hot mic Uh, but that team of uh, Cunningham, Batson and Regis it was just the quality of it David rather than the fact that they were black well, I think they won over the doubters um, just through the sheer quality of their players you say I mean I think I say in the book that uh, one of the best bits of doing the research actually was looking at old footage of Laurie Cunningham that you can still find on YouTube. It was just a joy to watch and uh, uh, I think Ron Atkins quote was that we use in the book was if he'd, if he'd run on snow he would have left no, no footprints. It was that light on his feet. It was, it was, it was, there's some lovely footage of him that you can watch on YouTube. Um, but he, he was top quality but there's no doubt at all that uh, you know, he and Regis uh, and uh, Brenda Batson did come in for a lot of abuse. They were one of those examples where I think they, they were loved by their own fans who weren't a, above abusing visiting black players. It's one of those paradoxes of racism in sport is that uh, you don't mind hurling racist abuse at people on the other side, black people playing for the other side, but you're willing to cheer black players on your own side. I mean, Millwall is another example of that. Mm. Did that also happen with Chelsea when Paul Cannonville, whose book Black and Blue came out quite recently, but he was Chelsea's first black player in shock horror, 1982. 
Well, I think Paul Cannaville's story is an interesting one because I think he was one of the very few players, possibly the only one that we have come across, who was actually consistently booed by his own fans. I mean, that was unusual. Um, and I was uh, in a pub uh, not so very long ago with Bill and some somebody else who said that he was at that game at Selhurst Park, the, the game where uh, Cannaville made his as his debut for Chelsea as was I uh, and as we, as we were saying earlier I, although I was at that game and he was abused by um, a section of his own fans as he was warming up to come on and after he came on I don't remember it I mean I was watching Palace we were 1-0 one nil, one nil down trying to get an equaliser I expect I was focused on that rather than the fact that why are these people booing their own player it didn't really occur to me um, but the bloke in the pub said that he was a Chelsea fan and he was so appalled by what he heard from his sort of fellow fans that he walked out of the ground he couldn't bear to be in the ground while that was going on um, and Canova was consistently booed by his own fans for um, probably a couple of seasons but in the end I think uh, he did win them over and I think um, Pat Nevin uh, spoke up for him and said look this has got to stop uh, and I think eventually the message got through and Paul Cannaville I'm not sure he ever became a hero of the Chelsea fans but I think they accepted him mm. Pat Nevin's got a book out uh, as this goes out it'll be imminently I am trying to get Pat on although I do worry uh, that I will say let's talk for two hours about indie rock in the, in the 80s and 90s rather than your Chelsea and, and Scotland career 